you, sir. Amen. I don't know about all that admiral stuff, but <laughs> that's awfully kind of you. I sure do appreciate that. Best one to trust is Jesus Christ. And he's telling you right. It's a difficult thing. We all have that streak of rebellion in us, don't we? We all have that streak of rebellion. <laughs> I mean, come on, isn't there something in you, you know, guys, when your wife asks you to do something that sounds more like an order than a request? And don't you just kind of want to, just for the sake of, y'all are looking at each other. <laughs> It's in every one of us. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do. God has a way of breaking every man and every woman down and bringing us down to the person that he knows us to be, not what we think everybody else knows us to be. And every one of us has, as the old preacher used to say, enough fleas on us to remind us of the dog that we are. Now, I'll try to give you something tonight. I hope and pray it won't be anything new or anything that you don't already know. But sometimes uh, reiterating some things or going back over some things maybe helps you to see it from a different perspective. And uh, oftentimes, when we start looking at things that are in the Bible, we have a preconceived notion as to what they are. I've learned a little bit over time, and part of that is, is that some of the things that I did that were wrong to do, I did out of just pure ignorance. Uh, some of them was out of zeal and not according to knowledge, and I made a lot of mistakes. My motive was right. My method was a soup sandwich. Uh, sometimes it was because of a lack of instruction. Sometimes it was misinterpreted instruction, meaning that I thought it meant one thing when it actually meant something entirely different, but I didn't have the capacity to understand what it was that I was being shown. And so uh, it's very important when you go at certain things in the Bible that you understand what it is that you're looking to get out of the thing as opposed to just letting the situation or circumstances you're in dictate to you the interpretation of what it is you're looking at. Let me see if I can clear that up a little bit. You can be in a really bad storm and you can get a misperception of how far away the shore is because between you and the shore is a lot of wind and waves and rain and thunder and lightning and those kinds of things. The same boat on the same place looking at the shore doesn't appear to be near as far away when the storm is cleared through. So when we look at this thing here tonight, I want you to just pause for a moment and I want you to think about how you've always thought about this particular topic. Because oftentimes two things occur. Number one, the idea in the old days of a revival meeting is you waited for the preacher to get up and burn your eyes out of your head or to get on your dingbat and get all over you and holler and scream at you and rant and rave about all the sins of the flesh that you've been committing and shouldn't do. And the idea of revival, which ended ultimately at the altar, was I got right, I gave up my cigarettes, I gave up my liquor, I gave up my foul talk, I gave up my whatever the list of a million things is. And so therefore I'm ready for revival, you're just getting started. You see, there's more to revival than just the fact that you come up there and you clear the things out. It requires you to be able to recognize that now that's the beginning or the foundation. And now that that foundation is cleared off, how many of us have stopped right there and our relationship with the Lord is nothing more than a constant 1 John 1, 9, a constant forgiveness, a constant, Lord, I didn't mess up again and I'm really sorry. Lord, I didn't read my Bible today. Lord, I didn't pray today. Lord, I missed a chance to witness today. Lord, help me with this and Lord, help me with that. How many of us have that shallow relationship with the Lord? It doesn't run any deeper than that. 
And the reason sometimes is not to your, uh, as your, uh, your fault, some of it is uh, to our discredit because we as preachers haven't oftentimes made it clear there's a lot more to the Lord than just forgiveness. Amen. I mean, He can be your friend if you let Him be your friend. Amen. I mean, how shall two walk together except they be agreed? But oftentimes, and of course because when we first came out back in the, way back in the days when you first started coming out of the Southern Baptists and the General Baptists and the Regular Baptists and all the other Baptists that were out there to come away from and all, we had a tendency to move because they were ultra-liberal. We became ultra-conservative. And so what began to happen is, is this movement took place where it began to be pants and pork and haircuts and hemlines and spirituality was looked at as long as you get the outside right, you must be spiritual on the inside. Well, what happened was, is over a period of time, this is church history, this is just a matter of what's happened. As a matter of time, what happened? It's not that those things were not right. It means that those things began to be literally, once you get there, you are spiritual and you had no depth to your relationship with the Lord. You just learned how to put on a coat and tie, how to cut your hair, how to wear a dress a certain way and those kinds of things and have certain standards in your life. And so therefore you thought, well, I've done all those things. I must be spiritual. But there was no growth at all between you and the Lord. No growth in your prayer life. No growth in your spiritual life. No measurement of the fruit of the Spirit. Amen. Galatians 5 is the measurement of the fruit of the Spirit. Have you read those? There's nine fruits there. Not a single one of them have to do with outward appearance. Now don't go out of here and say, I'm not for you having some standards in your life. That's easy for me because of my background. I don't have any difficulty at all in a paramilitary background of being told how I'm to dress, how I'm supposed to do, where the collar brass is supposed to go, how my shoes have to be shined, how my mustache has to be cut, how my hair has to be cut. I mean, I had a rule and a general order and an SOP for everything I did. The difficulty I had was recognizing that in dealing with church people, you can't govern church people with general orders and SOPs. But it's easier for me to adapt to that style of spirituality because guess what? I mean, I've been left that lived that way for years. I like that kind of routine. Is this making any sense to any of you? It doesn't make me spiritual. Within the whole area where I'm at, and when we used to run the prisons on a regular basis, I've got over 100 prisons in the state of Florida. I can take you down there and I can show you everybody dressed the same. I can show you with their hair cut. They're not allowed to smoke. They're not allowed to drink. They're not allowed to use foul language, at least in the public where they can be heard from other people. They get demerits and that kind of a thing. They're told when to get up. They're told when to go to bed. They're told when they can eat. They're told where they can eat. They're told everything they can do. You would think it was an independent Baptist church. I'm being serious. They did that because they're convicts. They're prisoners. You'll get that in just a minute. Bondage always creates bitterness. Now there'll be some rebel, uh, uh, some, some rebel donkey that'll step in and say, yeah, that's why I don't believe in any kind of you know, standard. Don't be telling me what to do. Well, no, now you, you're beyond help. There's something, that, that's kid stuff. But what I'm trying to help you to understand is there's more to the Christian relationship than just cleaning up the outside. There's more to the Christian relationship than I used to be a drug addict, okay? Used to be. That's the operative word. Can we move forward now? Well, I used to be a drug addict. How long ago? 40 years. Okay. What have you done in the last 40 years? 
It can be a part of your testimony. Do you understand? What I'm saying is, is that has there been any growth? Listen, you know what we would call that? We would say mentally deficient or that there was some uh, something that would be wrong if a plant was put in the ground and it stayed little all the time. I know you like the babies when they're first born. And I know I heard my granddaughter say the other day, she goes, he's just, Papa, he's just going to stay little uh, from now on. I said, no, he ain't. He's going to grow. <laughs> you keep feeding him, he's going to grow fast the way he's growing right now. But you know what we say? Oh, well, I want to remain little. But in the Christian life, how little are we? How much growth has there been in the area, say, for instance, in grace? How about kindness? How about surety in your relationship with him and a relationship with others? Are you still struggling with the things on the inside? He says in 2 Corinthians chapter number 7, let us cleanse ourselves of both the flesh and the what? Spirit. See, we have our problem. We know how to keep the windows clean on the outside. We got great curb appeal, right? Somebody rides by, looks at us, and hey, man, they must be high and tight and looking right. Boy, I mean, they're, they're doing really good. But boy, on the inside, we're messed up like a soup sandwich. Now, I'm going to show you something tonight, I hope with the Lord's help, that will maybe give you a different apparent, broaden your horizon, your spectrum. It's not anything weird or hokey or you're going to have to worry about a Ouija board or some kind of a crystal ball. It's all right out of the Bible, and it starts literally in just the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. Most times at the beginning of the year, I'm pretty safe when I go a few places here and there to preach. I'm pretty safe as long as I preach from Genesis to maybe the first five books in the Bible. Everybody goes through at the beginning of the year and they make this uh, promise that they're going to read their Bible through. You know, when you make the commitment in January? Amen. That lasts till about March. <clears throat> and then next year, Lord, this year, this is going to be the year. I am going to read my Bible through. I mean, I made it all the way to Judges last year. <laughs> so you preach in the first five books, you're safe. But then if you say, turn to the Bible and turn to the book of Hezekiah, they're looking in the book of Hezekiah. It's like, it must be in there. He mentioned it somewhere. Don't go looking. It's not in there. <laughs> As a king that was in there. But you know what can happen is, is sometimes you miss some things that are listed in the Bible. You're in Second Chronicles. Look, if you will, please. Second Chronicles. Let me see if I can show you this. 2 Chronicles chapter number 15, this is to do with Asa the king. And Asa starts off in chapter number 14. It's a great passage to read about how to do things the right way. And I hope you're understanding the context. I'm not trying to take you into a deeper life. I'm trying to say that sometimes the monotony of routine duty is because of a lack of us increasing our information, our knowledge of what it is the Lord's looking for. I, I don't believe that anyone has ever mastered the book. If anybody even came close, the old preacher did. You know what he said? I don't believe I'm a scholar. I don't believe I've mastered it. I read things in the Bible now. I read things in the Bible. I won't say every single day, but I read things in the Bible on a regular basis. I even go over old sermons, and I see stuff I've never seen before, and I've been reading it sometimes. Maybe I've been reading it maybe longer than some of you, but let's just say a few years, and then all of a sudden something jumps off the page, and I'm like, how could I have ever missed that? Surely I've seen that before, and it's been there the whole time. It's just the Lord eventually peels the layers of the onion off, and you see things from a different perspective because you're standing in a different place. If I were to ask you right now, who is at Anchor Baptist Church, and there's an individual standing by the sign and said, well, there's a sign out here, and it's blipping with Scripture on it, and this and that and the other, and I say, well, I'm at Anchor Baptist Church, and I don't see any sign at all. You're at the wrong place. 
And I say, no, I see the windows on the side and there's houses across the street and so on and so forth, and, but there's no sign out here. We must be at two different places. No, you're looking at the same thing from a different perspective. You go through difficulty and trouble, you look at the Bible in an entirely different perspective than somebody that's never had trouble. You get to learn things about God other people don't know about God when you go through trouble because God ministers to you differently when you're in trouble than He does to people that aren't having trouble. One of the greatest things about God is, is He's the truest friend you'd ever have. When trouble comes, that's when He does the greatest things. He doesn't run. He shows up during that time. But He doesn't trust everybody with trouble. But your perception changes in trouble because of experience. All right, this is Asa now. He says there in chapter number 14, the Bible says Asa did that in verse number 2, which is good and right in the eyes of the Lord. Why? Because he took away the altars of the strange gods of the high places, break down the images, and cut down the groves. Would you agree that's a good thing? You can stand if you'd like to. We'll be seated for just a little while tonight. Even though I do have cinnamon rolls and biscuits waiting on me. <clears throat> and yes, I am going to eat, and it's not presumptuous. I intended to do it the entire time. All right, now notice, if you will, skip over to chapter 15. Now, would you agree it's the right thing to do to take away the wrong altars? All altars are is a place of sacrifice or surrender to whatever it is you're worshiping. You follow me? Amen. All right, now watch. Watch chapter number 15. The Bible says, The Spirit of God came upon Azariah, the son of Oded, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said unto him, Hear ye me, and he said unto, Hear ye me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin. The Lord is with you. Big comma, while you be with him. And if ye seek him, he will be found of you. But if ye forsake him, he will forsake you. Now for a long season, Israel had been without a true God, without a teaching priest, and without law. But when they in their trouble, see, did turn unto the Lord God of Israel and sought him, he was found of them. And in those times, there was no peace to him that went out. Sounds like America, doesn't it? nor to him that came in, but great vexations were upon all the inhabitants of the countries. Now he talks about the cities against the cities and the nations against the nations, so it's not just in the time period we're in now. It was way back then. History is repeating itself. And Asa does this in verse number 8. Heard these words, the prophecy of Oded the prophet, took courage and put away the abominable idols out of the land of Judah and Benjamin, out of the cities which he had taken from Ephraim, and renewed the altar of the Lord which was before the porch of the Lord. Brother Mike, you pray. Would you ask the Lord to help us? Hold our hands, Lord, that can show us uh, the paths that we need to be on, the old paths that we need to get back on. And Lord, like he said, it's just not uh, coming to the altar for repentance, but it's more than just that. Lord, open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts tonight that we'd be attentive to the Word of God, give Him what we need, and we'll praise you and honor you in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen. Amen. Now, if you'll just sit back and relax for a minute, I'm just going to tell you a, a couple of stories. There's always this struggle with the nation of Israel about going after other gods. The nation of Israel, if you read about them very often, you start recognizing, man, God must have loved them because He just gives them chance after chance after chance after chance after chance. If you do this, I'll bless you. If you don't do that, I'll curse you. And they wind up not doing what they're told to do. They do what they're not supposed to do. And then the Lord curses them. And then the Lord lets them come back. And they get back in there. And one of the things that occurs is, is they start worshiping strange gods. Every time when they leave Him, they don't just leave and go sit idle. They go follow other gods. 
And that same thing occurs with us today. It's not this idea of, well, I'm pulling back from the church and I'm pulling back from the Lord and I'm still saved and I believe in eternal security, but I just need a break from all those things. You know what will happen? You start listening to God, you're going to start listening to other voices. It won't be long. You'll be worshiping another God. You'll have an altar of sacrifice out there. It'll be the altar where you'll sacrifice your time or your talent. You'll be willing to give to it whatever it desires from you. It can be work. Work is not a bad thing. As a matter of fact, you would never think that work could be a sin, but work can get between you and God. It can be a promotion. It can be a reputation. There's all kinds of different names for gods nowadays, and what happens is, is that we make a choice to say, well, I'm just going to pursue my career. Okay, that's great. I'm not saying you shouldn't pursue your career, but at the expense of your relationship with the Lord? That's not just an old man talking to you. That's, I believe, that you can do both and keep things in balance and do it the right way than to have to just abandon one or the other, but better to abandon a career than to abandon God. So one of the things that happens with the nation of Israel is is that you will find that their altars that are going to other gods stay in a constant state of repair and they are the epitome of structures that are sound because they're used on a regular basis. For instance, they get up every single day and they go to work and they do all the things they have to do. I'm amazed at the people that were willing to take a bullet for this country, but if you were to ask them to go to a mission field... They'd say, well, I don't know. I don't want to leave my family behind. You went to your tours of duty. You didn't think anything of leaving your family behind then. You even knew that they might send you back in a body bag. But now the Lord says, hey, why don't you go to some country over there? Well, I don't know. They have a 401k and a retirement plan. And did they have this and they do that? And can I get this taken care of and and all that? It's, It's interesting what you're willing to sacrifice for. I've seen people sacrifice their health for a multitude of different things. You say, well, preacher, what are you saying to me? Well, the thing that happens is, is when the Lord steps in with Asa, this isn't the first time. He does it over in Judges. He comes to Gideon. He says, mighty man of valor. He's over there throwing the wheat up in the thing when the Israel, uh, when they're uh, being taken over there by the enemy. And he says, I got a couple things I want you to do. Oh, yes, sir, Lord, you want me to do something? Yeah, I want you to do what you want me to do. I want you to go over there, first of all, and tear down your daddy's altars. Your daddy's worshiping the wrong place. Your daddy's doing the wrong thing. I want you to go tear those altars down. That's a pretty tall request, isn't it? Especially if you're from where I'm from down south. I mean, man, coming against mama and daddy, boy, that's like next thing. It's like, you know, father, son, Holy Spirit, mama, daddy kind of deal. Right? You know what he said? I want you to tear them down. And he said, uh, well, he said, by the, by the way, he's got a prize cow over there he's going to be offering. I want you to wind up using him, take him, and we're going to put him on a different altar there. And he said, I want you to go out and do it. You know what Gideon does? He goes out, and he can only find ten guys to help him in probably a Sunday night service at an independent Baptist church. But at any rate, he goes over there, and he finds him ten guys, and they go out night. Nobody even knows who they are. They're not mentioned. I probably would rather have 10 guys in the basement willing to do it than 10 guys in a bay window wanting everybody to know what they did. But at any rate, they go out there and they tear down the altar and then the Lord said, now that you tore that one down, you better replace it. Have any of you ever had a cavity in your tooth before? Anybody at all? One or two of you? A few? All right, you know what happens? You get a cavity in there and that rot's begun to sink into your teeth, right? 
and you go to the dentist and he makes it worse. He drills out all the rot and everything else around it until he gets clear margins so that he's able to get in there. And then he just leaves the hole in your head and says, well, I hope you do well. We got the rot out. It won't be long before food and stuff gets back in there and it makes you more susceptible to a cavity if you don't put something back in the hole once the rot's driven out. We're real good, ladies and gentlemen, and I'm saying this to my own detriment. I'm talking about my own crowd. I'm talking about myself. We're good at getting people to get rid of the rot. But we're not real good at telling them what to fill the hole back in with. And if all you do is spend time at an altar getting rid of the rot, you aren't even halfway there. You know what you're going to be? More susceptible to more problems. You say, why? Because you didn't put the right stuff back in the hole. Once that stuff comes out, I don't know, amalgam or whatever, they used to use mercury, and now they found out that's toxic to you. It makes you a radio station or something like that or kills you because of it or whatever. But I, I, whatever, they fill it back in there with something. You say, why? To prevent rot from getting back in the hole. You know what he said to Gideon? He said, now I want you to go build me the right altar. Well, Lord, it's just one altar. Why don't we just scrape the stuff off of there and use the same altar? No, there's something to the building of the altar. You see, Israel always had that tendency to get away from God, and the first thing that went was the altar. You know what I'm seeing across the United States of America? You know what I'm seeing in our independent Baptist churches, our fundamental churches, our King James-only street-preaching churches, our hell-hating, our heaven-loving churches? You know what I'm seeing? I'm seeing people that are abandoning the altar. It's just like Israel. We don't need to pray about it. We don't need to talk about it. Oh, they're just trying to make us go down there to the altar. God's got a way of humbling you. Didn't you know that? You know what I've seen people do? I've seen them get up in front of hundreds of people to accept an award or something that they won for something they did at their business or their job or whatever. They're not embarrassed at all to get up there and to give a speech about it. Get somebody to get up and give a testimony of what Jesus did for them. Man, they'd choke on a peanut. They'd be like, oh, I don't want to get up in front of all them people. Why don't you get up and sing a special? Oh, well, I can't sing or anything like that. But uh, sure, I'll take the award and get my picture taken and get in the newspaper or get in whatever the rag is that's out there for everybody to see. Isn't that interesting how that is? Yeah. You know what's happening? People are saying, well, I don't want to go down there. I'm embarrassed. Well, I grew up in the day when people would walk an aisle to get saved because they were afraid of going to hell. Nowadays, you can't beg people to come. You have to make arrangements. Now, if you're here today and, and if you really want to get saved, we realize that we don't want to embarrass you and we don't want to make things hard on you and our heads are bowed and eyes are closed and nobody's looking around. And if you could maybe find your way to make yourself small, throw a blanket over yourself and come down here quietly and, and we'll talk to you and that kind of a deal. Now, it's uh, I'll be glad to meet you after the service and we'll go back to my office and in private, uh, we'll make sure you do that. If that was a promotion at work, it'd be like, hey, are y'all throwing a party for me and giving me a cake? <laughs> but we don't want to make that altar. You say, why? Part of that is because of the mindset that the altar is you're always coming to confess you did something wrong. Well, it's not all the altar is for. The altar's for a lot of things. And if all you're doing when somebody comes to the altar is going, yeah, you know, the preacher's been preaching on drinking. And they're going down there, they must have a drinking problem. Maybe they're going down to pray for you about your gossip problem. Maybe that's what it is. Maybe because they realize it'll take you four trips to bring 40 feet of your tongue down to the altar. They're just coming down there with for you in your behalf. And you're making fun of them and they're praying for you. You don't know why they're down there. But the misconception is, oh, they're getting right. They're getting right with God. Well, what do you do if you're right with God? Oh, don't bother to come to the altar. If you're right with God, don't even bother. That's all the altar is for. It's just to get right. Well, yes and no. 
In Genesis chapter number 1, when the Lord is there and He creates heaven and earth and those kind of things, by the time you get to uh, Genesis chapter number 3, Eve messes up, looks at the fruit, she falls up, she doesn't fall down, and she looks at the fruit and the devil tempts her and she takes the fruit, and the next thing you know, Adam jumps in on that, and then he's over there hiding from the very one that's been his friend. You know what he said? He said, Adam, where art thou? I'm in Genesis 4 now. That's the law of first mention. Law of first mention and further mention, final mention, that's a basic biblical truth as far as Bible study is concerned. He said, Adam, wherefore art thou, Adam? Now listen, if he is omniscient, he knows everything. Right? All right, well if that's if he's omnipresent, he's everywhere, right? Why is he asking Adam that? Wherefore art thou, Adam? (laughs) Adam, Adam, you playing hide and seek? He didn't ask because he didn't know. He asked Adam because he wanted to know, Adam, do you know where you are right now? Do you recognize the condition that you're in? Do you see the mess you have made here? Adam, where are you? I'm over here in the bushes. What in the county are you doing in the bushes? Well, I'm in the bushes, you know, because uh, we, we were naked. The Lord said, you don't think I knew that? I made you, boy. I've been walking with you every day. You never had that concern before when you were clothed with light. You didn't even know anything about what naked was. What do you mean you were naked, you know? What are you doing covered up and all that kind of stuff? Well, you know, we knew that we were naked. Who taught you that? Well, Lord, the woman you gave me. Funny, but there's, man, that's, that's the typical nowadays. It's the environment I'm in, Lord. It's where I was raised. It's my skin color, Lord. I had a bad mom and I had a bad daddy, Lord. I got a bad break in life, Lord. I wasn't born the right way, Lord. You know what? One of the things you got to learn about that Bible is, is the Lord will teach you that pain is going to be a part of life. And as soon as you learn to embrace that pain, that's where power comes from. It's not shirking that pain. It's grabbing hold of that pain by the throat and saying, you're not going to take me down. And you learn from that pain things you can't learn any other place. Any other place. He said, if you suffer, you shall also reign. Paul said, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. How, Paul? By the fellowship of his sufferings. Have you read 2 Corinthians 11 and looked at the apostle Paul's life? And not one time Paul complained about that. Why? He knows ministry comes from misery. But he has to go through it, 2 Corinthians 1, in order to minister to other people. Most people don't want to do that. It requires an altar of sacrifice. It requires me saying, Lord, I surrender all, including myself. I'm not coming to get right. I'm not coming to confess my sin. I'm not coming to come out of the bushes or come out of the closet. God help you. If you're in the closet, stay in there. <laughs> Amen. I mean that. Amen. You got no business being there. Repent. Get right with God and then you can come out and we don't want to talk about it. Shut the door behind you and don't ever plan on going back in. But don't be trying to make me feel bad about your wickedness. I'm not the one wrong. You are. Amen. That's good. Whether you, well, you see, you're getting too comfortable with that nowadays. You see a couple of guys kissing nowadays. You think, well, you know, it's just the world. You're getting too comfortable. But anyway, you know what he says to Adam? He says to Adam, he says, oh, where are you at, boy? And he said, oh, I'm over here in the bushes. He said, what you doing over there? He said, Lord, I was afraid. Afraid? Afraid? I've been walking with you every day before I ever gave you. I saw it's not good that man dwell alone and created for you a woman. I mean, she's the most beautiful woman in the whole world, man. you got to be kidding me. What do you mean you were afraid? What have I ever done to make you afraid? You just learned the side of me I didn't ever intend for you to see. But boy, when you sin, 
You know what the Lord does? Apparently he has to build an altar there. You say, why? Because he takes a couple little lambs there. He makes coats of skin and he makes covering there for Adam and for Eve there. And the first mention of that thing is exactly where you and I first met the Lord. You came to Calvary at an altar where a lamb was stretched out on an altar there and died for your sins according to Scripture, was buried and raised again the third day. And you met him at that altar and confessed your sins and asked him to be your Savior or you didn't get saved. Amen. Your relationship with Him began at an altar. It was the altar of sacrifice that He laid down for you. You know what you had to do? You had to come out of the bushes and said, Lord, it's me, it's me, it's me, oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Lord, it's not my brother, it's not my sister, it's me, it's me, it's me, it's me. You know what it would be good for some of you to do during this revival meeting? Uh, How about getting selfish for a change? How about turning inward for just a while? How about spending some time with your own egotistical self for a little while and say, Lord, what's wrong with me? I mean, get, get personal about it. I mean, wind up, you know, kind of saying, Lord, I, I want some personal attention. Good, look in the mirror. Stop looking at everybody else. I know you know what's wrong with everybody else. You think everybody else is looking around here like you're looking around here. No, they're not looking around. They're thinking the same thing you are. They think when they walked in, they're the bride at the wedding and the corpse at the funeral. And you think they're looking at you. And they're thinking, no, I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at me. You know what he said to Adam? He said, hey, I'm going to make it right for you. And he provides a covering of skins. But we don't go but one more chapter. Now you're in Genesis chapter number four. If you're taking notes, this will be the second one. There's only about 12 of these, so we'll be done by midnight. You'll be like Eutychus and fall out of the window here in just a little while. But listen to me. You know what happens in Genesis chapter number 4? You got two boys there that have been brought up the right way. You know what happened after the fall? They had to teach those boys, you need a place to go to meet God. You say, why? Because you mess up and you need a place to come offer a sacrifice. And those boys come in there and you say, well, preacher, it's the same thing all over again. Well, let me finish the story and you tell me. First thing happens in there, Abel comes in and he puts his uh, offering there on the altar and that kind of a thing and he gets ready to go and Cain comes in there and he puts his offering on the altar. Uh, Cain puts his there first and he has all the fruits and the vegetables and stuff like that. The Lord doesn't do anything. He just looks at it, doesn't say nothing, doesn't hit it with lightning, nothing. Abel comes in there, lays that little lamb up there and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And the Lord out of a Carolina blue sky strikes that uh, little lamb right there. But the story's not about Abel's forgiveness. That story switches quickly to what's going on with Cain. You say, what's Cain? Cain's a typical, independent, fundamental, Bible-believing, King James-only Baptist. He's not worried about his relationship with the Lord. He's worried about his relationship. How come you took my brothers? Why'd you take my brothers? Why'd you let him sing? Why'd you let him preach? Why'd you let him take up the offering? Why'd you let him do this? Why'd you let him do that? I mean, I don't like him and he shouldn't be there. He shouldn't be doing that. He shouldn't be doing this. I mean, how come you let him do that? And the Lord said, hey man, why is your countenance falling? Calm down just a little bit there. Uh, What's the problem there? And he said, you took his, you didn't take mine. The Lord said, ever dawn on you, you didn't bring what I wanted. What do you mean I didn't bring what you wanted? I brought all that I could have, all that brought the best I have. I brought, I'm, I'm a farmer. And he said, but I don't want fruits and vegetables. I want a lamb. That shouldn't be a problem for you, should it, Cain? Well, uh, it's a little bit of a problem. I, I don't have any lambs. Well, you, you know, you know any shepherds? Well, yeah. Uh, well, who's the shepherd there, Cain? Well, my brother, Abel, well, go see your brother and get a lamb and bring it and I'll accept the offering. He said, 
You mean I got to go make things right with my brother in order to get a lamb and make you happy? The Lord said, yeah. Yeah, that'll work, won't it? There's no problem with that. I mean, you care about me and you, don't you, Cain? You mean I got to get right with my brother to do that? Yeah, go to see your brother, get the lamb and bring it. I, I, I ain't about to do that. If it means me getting right with him in order to be right with you, nothing doing. The Lord said, be careful now, boy. Sin lies at the door. Devil's sitting right out there ready to devour you like a roaring lion, man, and rip you to pieces. You don't even realize what you're saying. I don't have to give you the warnings. He doesn't even tell him what's going to happen to him. He just said, you better watch it, boy. He doesn't say, here, I'm going to give you all these threats and these things are going to happen to you if you don't do it. He doesn't manipulate him by guilt. He doesn't even manipulate him by fear. He just gives him one. He says, sin lies at the door. And he said, you mean me go to my brother? I'm not going to my brother. I ain't about to go to my brother. Well, you know what happens in the rest of the story. He winds up and instead of going to his brother and make, getting a lamb and making things right between him and God, you know what happens? He winds up rejecting what God says. You say, why? Because he wouldn't give God what he wanted. When's the last time you came to an altar instead of bringing what you wanted to bring, you asked God, what does he want you to bring? When's the last time you brought something to the altar and the Lord said, I'm not really interested in that. That's a cover-up. That's a scam. That's a sham. You know what I'd rather you do? I'd rather you put your pride on the altar, your arrogance on the altar, your obnoxiousness on the altar. I'd rather you go make it right with that brother or that sister that you can't seem to get along with. I'd rather you take the wrong, 2 Peter chapter number 2 or 2 Peter chapter number 1. I'd rather you take the one, that's the, take the wrong, that's thankworthy. Big, big Christian are you, Cain? You can't get right with each other? That Bible says in Luke chapter number 17, uh, it's impossible, but that offenses will come. Woe unto him to who they come. Better for him than a millstone be hung about his neck to be uh, offend one of these little ones. Uh, and uh, Lord, should we go to him? Pete jumps in. Uh, should we go to him? Forgive him seven times. The Lord says 70 times seven. He said, man, increase our faith. You know, he didn't say do it. He said, I got to go make that right. The Lord said, yeah, take the wrong. You want to hear more tonight, Cain? Until you cross that bridge right there, you ain't going to make no hay with the Lord. That's a southern way of saying you're not moving ahead in your relationship. You know what you are? You're stuck. And every time you come to the altar, the Lord going to say, what do you want, Cain? Lord, I want you to deal with me. I want you to help me. I want you to be a blessing to me. Lord, I'm struggling with this and struggling with that. The Lord said, well, go back and get things fixed up there with Abel. You think I'm kidding you? In the millennial kingdom, the Lord said, you're bringing your gift to the altar. You know what he says there to him? He said, before you even offer that gift, you go make things right with your brother, and then you bring me the gift. You want to know what's tearing up our independent Baptist churches? You want to know what's tearing up Christians right now? You can't get along with each other because you're so cotton picking jealous of each other and you're so frustrated with who ain't doing whatever they're doing. And God said to you, why don't you let me tend to that? And you're like, no, I'm a, I'm a better tender than you are. Well, guess what, Cain? You're going to be stuck right there. You know what happens with Cain? He winds up out of fellowship with the Lord, a fugitive and a vagabond. He winds up with the wrong people in the wrong place doing the wrong thing. And I'd be willing to bet you if you took a survey, a lot of people that have left our churches have left because they won't get right with you or you won't get right with them. Amen. Getting right with them, ladies and gentlemen, doesn't mean you have to condone their wrong behavior. It means you've got to learn to let it go. But you ain't going to do it. You ain't going to do it. You don't care that much about that. You see, there's a lot more offered at the altar than just a lamb. A lot more than just forgiveness. 
You say, what is that? That's a place of surrender. That's a place of Gethsemane. That's not my will, but thine be done. Whoever you got on the top of your list right now, why don't you bring him to the altar tonight when I get finished preaching and say, Lord, is that the problem? If it is, I want to make it right. And just see what he tells you. Find out if I'm a liar or not. Put me to the test. It's ripping our church's guts right out of the middle of it. And then you never look at yourself between you and the Lord and figure out what He has to put up with you on a daily basis. You think you've already arrived. And you, know, you and the Lord, y'all tight, y'all good and all that. And the Lord's thinking, I don't appreciate you keep talking about my kids. Listen, our churches should be a bulwark, a stanchion of faith, and it should be a foundational thing that's strong. But our churches are weakened within the walls of the church because we don't like people. Well, guess what? You can pick your nose and pick your seat, but you can't pick who's in your family. And the Lord lets whosoever will be saved. And whenever each one of us came to the Lord, ladies and gentlemen, you were a soup sandwich when you came, and now you're a saved soup sandwich. You still got problems, even though they may be less than other people, or you've just gotten better at covering them up. Now all of a sudden, you know how I know you think you're it? Because it's all you do is spend all your time running everybody down. Well, I'll tell you what. Why don't we just get all of them to leave? Then you'll be talking about them because they all left. Ain't nobody coming to church no more. Nobody wants to come to church anymore. I bet you'd be willing to have them back. Man, if you're a preacher, you'd be glad at least to have a shot at them. And all of a sudden, the people in the church start saying, well, I don't like him and I don't like her. Well, shut up, man. I'm glad the pews are filled up, man. I'm glad that they're here. Yeah, but they're messed up and they're messed up and they're messed up. You know what? When you get to heaven, the Lord fixes it because you're going to be like him. You're not going to be like you. They're not going to be like you. Well, I got, listen, listen, you old bat. You, I, pardon me. Pardon me. Excuse me. <clears throat> Just because you got a little age on you, it don't mean you've arrived. You're not Jesus Christ. He's the ancient of days. And just because it's taken you 70, 80, 90 years to learn something, it don't mean that these pipsqueaks learned it quite as fast as you did. Where were you when you were 40? Where were you when you were 25? Amen. How dare you look down your nose at somebody else's teenager and think, well, you know, I just don't believe I saw and so forth. Well, how were you doing when you were a teenager? You would have been smoking crack if it had been around back then, but they didn't even know what the crack was back in the day you came up. And you just went out and got you some rabbit tobacco and went out behind the barn and you were doing whatever was available to you back in those days. It's just a little bit more blown up on steroids nowadays. I got to get off of this one. We got 10 to go. <laughs> but I'm wore out with the, the attitude or the spirit of Cain in the churches nowadays. And that is, Lord, I ain't bringing you what you want. I'm bringing you what I want. And I don't care if you like it. Well, I brought the Lord what He want, what I want. I, I tell you what, I said I was going to be a preacher. If He ain't going to let me preach, I ain't going to do nothing. The Lord said, I can call you to preach. Well, if you don't let me preach, I'm leaving the church. Okay, you think the Lord's going to let you preach because you're now threatening Him? That's called blackmail. The Lord don't fall for it. He don't negotiate with terrorists. And some of you are like Ahmed sitting there tonight. I kill you. Amen. Amen. I'm glad you can laugh a little bit. <laughs> By the time you don't go, let's just uh, jump along here pretty quick there. You come to the end of there of uh, Genesis chapter number 8. In my Bible, it's on the left-hand page, the bottom of the left-hand column, just before Genesis 9 there. And you know what happened? You got a boy there by the name of Noah. 
and Noah's getting ready to get off the ark there and the waters have assuaged and the ark is now resting there on Ararat and he's got Shem, Ham and Japheth and Miss Shem, Miss Ham, Miss Japheth and Miss Noah there and the Lord says, remember those uh, clean animals you got there? I'm looking up here because I'm trying to remember so I don't have to go back up here to my notes. And he, and he says, uh, yeah, Lord, I remember. And he said, take those animals and build you an altar and offer them there for a sacrifice. Offer them for a sacrifice. I mean, Lord, we've been cooped up on an ark. We ain't done nothing wrong. We ain't been going to the parties and we ain't been watching MTV and we hadn't been uh, messing around on YouTube and Instagram, Snapchat and, and all that other kind of stuff. We ain't even had a phone, Lord. I mean, we haven't really done anything. Lord, the Lord said, I'm not asking you to come off and build an altar for the purpose of you confessing sin. I'm asking you to build an altar of gratitude, of thankfulness. Amen. Hey, Noah, didn't I get you through the flood? Noah wasn't with you when I gave you the architectural plans, the blueprints for the ark. Didn't I help you get that thing built? Didn't I protect you during the storm? Didn't I protect your family? Aren't we starting all over with Shem, Ham, and Japheth and their family? Did pretty good for you, didn't I, Noah? Yes, sir, Lord, you did. Good, build an altar and just, just start off the new life, the new beginning with thankfulness. Hey, when was the last time you came to an altar? I mean, for no reason whatsoever, other than to say, Lord, sure appreciate you getting me through the storm. Lord, sure appreciate you getting me through this. Lord, sure appreciate you going with me through the cancer or through the... When's the last time that you just said like them leaping lepers over there? You know what that Bible says about those boys in Luke chapter number 17? The one of them comes back. He's a Samaritan there. And the Lord says, where are the nine that returned to give glory to God? You remember that passage, right? You know what? To give glory to God. I've read that passage and read that passage and read that passage. You can't even find that in one of these perverted Bibles. Nobody said glory to God there. He said return to give glory to God. How'd that boy give glory to God? You know how he gave glory to God? He said thank you. When was the last time you gave glory to God? You know, you're thinking now, aren't you? You're kind of like, oh, well, I didn't know that that meant I could. I'm not talking about saying glory to God. I'm talking about saying, Lord, thank you. You know what I think? I'm not like a lot of Bible expositors and a lot of commentators. and that. I'm not saying they're wrong. I think that he came back there. You know what I think he's saying? I think he's saying, Lord, I sure appreciate the leprosy. No, he's thanking him for the healing. Okay, all right, that's fine. Your interpretation's fine with me, no problem. But I'm preaching right now. I think he came back, you know what I think he says? Lord, if it hadn't been for that leprosy, I'd have never been in a leper colony. If I hadn't been in a leper colony, you'd have never come by there. And if I hadn't been in that leper colony, and you'd have never come by there. I'd have never met you. I'd have never seen you. Nothing would ever happen. You know something, Lord? I just recognize if it hadn't been for that sickness, I would have never gotten the help. I just want to tell you, Lord, I sure appreciate the leprosy. I sure do appreciate that. Lord, you know you didn't a favor when you made me sick. You ever thank God for your sickness? You ever thank God for your divorce? Say, yeah, man, I was glad to kick the old bag to the curb. (laughs) I bet your kids might not have been. I bet it didn't start off that way. You ever thank God for the pain that it caused? The heartache and the trouble? You ever thank God for the disease, the prodigal kids? He says, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. And everything? Everything. You ever thank Him for your aching bones? Amen. You say, well, I wouldn't have aching bones if I hadn't been sick, and I got sick and hadn't been You ever thank the fact you're still alive and you, got, you have the ability to feel bones aching? Amen. You ever thank Him for the trouble? You say, what's that? That's an altar of gratitude. 
That's an altar just saying, Lord, thank you. See, if nothing else, you can come down there, tell everybody else you're coming down here to thank him and then confess your sins. But I mean, why not? Why not? Lord, I just wanted to come down and thank you. See, there's more than one reason to go to the altar. The altars ought to be full every time. We were down in a meeting down in uh, Madison one time. The old preacher down there, hot August afternoon, man. Thunder begins to build up. The sky turns just as black as an inkwell, man. That thunder's rolling out there. Sounds like artillery barrage going across there. And lightning boy coming like a laser light show coming down. I said, man, we better get in, boy. They're probably going to lock it down. It's maximum security. And he said, well, you know, it'd probably be that way. You know how the devil is, you know. And I said, yeah, maybe probably lock it down. We're going to be locked in for a while. And he said, all right, well, let's go on in here and get in before it rains. He's worried about the paper getting wet. And we get everything set up. And man, I'm going to tell you what, it came a frog stranger or a gully washer, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it was, I mean, it was pouring. And those guys are falling out of their dorms, out of their, their barracks and places there. And they're standing there in their blues and they got on their hats and they're standing there and they're making them stand there in a pouring rain. And I mean, it is pouring, boy. That thunder and lightning, I'm standing back under the shed right by the front door of the chapel. And I'm thinking, man, you dirty dogs, how do you stand them out there look at them, you know, like that? And they're standing there like that and they're waiting. And then he calls formation and then they step out and they start stepping out. And they're coming into that uh, chapel there. And the preacher's getting things set up on the platform and they come in and pull all their hat. Out. I mean, look like they've been standing in a fire hose. And they walk in and they start piling in a big old place like this and probably about 175 or 200 of those guys come in there and they keep in different groups of them separated and they come up there and they're walking up there past me and they're five and six deep at a big old altar across the front. And that preacher says, man, we're going to have a meeting. And I said, well, what makes you say that, preacher? He said, because they begin where we end. Now, I'm not just shining you on and I'm not just preaching. I'm telling them the truth now. That's the best meeting I've ever been in in my life, and I've been in some great meetings. I've been in meetings, and, uh, I mean, camp meetings and things like that where the Shekinah glory came down, boy, and I'm telling you what, I mean, it was so stinking thick in there, you'd have to have a C&I dog to get out. And that kind of, I was in that meeting, just me and that preacher, and he's up there preaching, and he had a point in that sermon in there, and that place came apart, and I'm sitting down here where Joe's sitting right now, and I'm looking around, I didn't even know whether to get up or go down or look if I'm looking at myself or not looking at myself. I've never been in nothing like that in my entire life. You say, well, that just sounds kind of honky-winky and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> Whatever. I remember after that meeting was over with, I'm sitting in that van and I'm looking how those storms are passing off there over to the west and they're beginning to dip off over the horizon there and the sun just barely starting to peep in through in the, the backside of that thing and sort of orangish pink comes out and I'm just staring there looking off in the distance and he says, well, I guess we better go. And I said, yeah, I guess we better. And we both just sitting there looking at the thing. And I said, what was that? He said, that's something that God would come down and show his glory to a bunch of prisoners and a couple old preachers down here in the backside of nowhere on a hot August afternoon. And I said, yes, sir, but you didn't answer my question. He said, well, what was your question? I said, what was that? <laughs> and he said, well, the best I can describe is, he said, uh, the Lord filled a thimbleful and just gave you just a thimbleful of what heaven would be like. And he said, you couldn't have stood anymore. I said, I thought I was going to lose my mind. I mean, I didn't speak in tongues or roll around on the floor and eyes rolled back in my head. I just knew God was in there around a bunch of prisoners. But it all started for him at an altar. Before any preaching, before anything got going, you know what they're doing? They're coming down to an altar and saying, Lord, did you do something for us? I wonder if God might show up in our services a little bit more if that was more of a practice. 
Well, I don't want to get religious. Don't you worry about it. You ain't going to get religious, you hypocrite, you. I don't want to get it to where it's just a routine and that kind of a thing. You know what I've learned? And I've learned this over being there. I've been there 34 years now. You know what I've learned? The people in my church that go to the altar on a regular basis, I don't ever have any trouble out of them. It's those people that never go. Give an altar call, their Baptist salute, you know. <laughs> zipping their Bibles, zit, 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 you know, zipping it up, you know. Ready to go. Wife's picking up the pocketbook. I mean, they're like, you know, they're... And you want to just go, why don't you dip on out right now, you stinking little pinhead. Got everybody looking at them. Lord, trying to do business with people. I cut up one time during the service in Tennessee. My daddy was preaching. There's a fellow sitting behind me. I didn't know who he was. And during the invitation, I got to cutting up with my friend over there, David, and we were cutting up back and forth and so on and so forth. And the invitation was over with and done with and got through. And my daddy walked right up to me and he said, boy, go sit in the car. And when my daddy said that, that meant one thing. You're going to get a whooping when you get home. He ain't going to tell you why. He's just going to whoop you. We're going to wait till you get home. Then he's going to tell you. A whooping, not no little paddle. Not no on the hand. A whooping with a razor strap. Three swats. Going to really get your attention. So I'm sitting in the car, man, and I'm pouting and I'm scared and I'm shaking and all that kind of stuff. We get to the house. I'll never forget it. He got that razor strap and he's in there. And he came down and got on his knees right down beside my bed. Ah. and I'm sitting on the side of the bed and I'm waiting for my, you know, turn <laughs> and I'm fixing to get the swats and all that kind of stuff. And he said, boy, I looked up and tears are coming down his face. He said, there was a man sitting there in front of you. He said, I've been working on him for months trying to get him to church. And he said, uh, I preached that whole message there about the Lord and about, and about this fellow getting saved. And he said, I really felt like today might be the day he'd get in. And he said, but you were cutting up so much during that service that you distracted that man from God speaking to him. And he said, I came in here with the intention of whipping you, but he said, I figured I'm just going to tell you why I'm so upset about it and let you know I don't appreciate you cutting up. I'd rather you cut up during my preaching than I would cut up during the invitation. That's when God's preaching. I never forgot that. You said, what did it give you? PTSD. I mean, to this day, when somebody's given an invitation, man, I ain't messing around. Amen. I ain't messing around. I don't care if it's at camp. I don't care where it is. You know, I got to go pee or something like that. Pardon me, go to the bathroom. Excuse me. I, no, uh-uh. Mm -mm. No, uh-uh. I'm going to go, go there and preaching. I ain't going there in that. No, sir, I'd let it run down my leg before I go in that time. So, preacher, you're just ridiculous. No. No, there's something to what that old man said. You know, by the time you get to the fourth one that I'm going to show you here or the fifth one I'm going to show you here, you're by now oh, in Genesis, say, uh, 15. Genesis 15, there's a boy there by the name of Abram. Uh, this is before he gets ham on him later on after he gives uh, the offerings there to Melchizedek. But he's uh, Abram here in that passage. And you know what he does? He's, uh, the Lord's come to him and he said to him, if I remember the passage correctly, it's in the left-hand corner of my Bible there. He says this. He says to him, he said, I'm going to make your seed as the stars of the heavens, the sands of the shore. You remember that passage? You don't have to look it up. You can look it up tonight when you get home. It's Genesis 15. And he said, uh, Lord, how will I know? And the Lord said, build an altar. Lord, I just ask you to answer a question. The Lord said, build an altar. No, I just need you to answer the question. I said, build an altar. 
You know what I learned out of that passage right there? I look at that thing. It's got a lamb, a ram, a he goat, and uh, uh, two turtle dove, a turtle dove and a pigeon that's there, if I remember correctly. By the time I got that thing figured out, I'm thinking to myself, number one, how many Christians are looking for the will of God in their life? And they say, Lord, how will I know? And the Lord said, build an altar. He's like, no, I'm just, I want, hey, you know, give me a sign on a billboard. I pull up behind a car. It says Tahiti. I must be called to be a missionary in Tahiti. I turn on the TV. There's a commercial of Tahiti. And I mean, I wonder how many have been to an altar and spent some time at the altar saying, Lord, how will I know? What am I supposed to do? But then I got the answer to my question. I started looking at that thing and before the Lord even shows up in the horror of darkness, a multitude of things take place. If I have it numbered out right, there's 14 trips that guy made to the altar before the Lord even set the thing on fire. And I thought, well, there it is. I'm going to say this to you. I'm going to be willing to bet. I mean no disrespect by what I'm about to say, but I bet you some of you birds hadn't been to the altar 14 times in a year. There's 52 weeks in a year. That's not even a third of the time. 14 trips to the altar. Have you made 14 trips? I can't go to the altar 14 times. People think I'm really messed up. You know what happens? He goes back and forth and he cuts those animals in quarters, the big ones. He cuts the other ones in halves. And then he takes the, even the turtle dove and the pigeon. He's probably able to do that right there. But the rest of them, if you've done a cow before or a deer or a, a large animal, a big pig or whatever, you know how much effort that takes to gut the animal, clean the animal, quarter the animal, lay the animal, get the pieces laid up there the way they're supposed to be laid up there. By the way, this is before the law is even around. You know what he said to him? You want to know what my will is for you? Yes, Lord, I want to know your will. How do I know you're going to answer this prayer? Build an altar. You want an answer? Build an altar. You know what you're going to have to do, Abram? You're going to have to keep going. You know what that is? He has to go by himself. There's no record of anybody helping him with that. There's some things you don't need help with. You just need to keep going until God answers you. But you won't go by yourself. And you know what he has to do? You have to put in the work. There's sweat involved in it. There's effort involved in it. Uh, sometimes it requires effort to be a Christian. Don't you know that? I didn't say to be saved. He did all that. But what happened nowadays? We got lazy Christians. You know what they do? They're sideline setters. They're, I mean, they're good Monday morning quarterback. They can tell everybody what they ought to be doing and how they ought to be doing it. But they don't put any sweat themselves in. If you were busy at training yourself as much as you're trying to train everybody else, you'd be surprised. You might be a star for Jesus. But you're too busy looking at what everybody else ought to be doing. How am I doing? Why don't you tend to your own bailiwick? You ain't going to be able to make nothing of yourself if you don't go to the gym. You sit in the window all day long and say, well, I think you ought to be doing this, and I think you ought to be doing this, and you need to be doing that, and you need to be doing this. And why don't you get your hind end out there on the bench? Why don't you start running instead of talking about how fat and out of shape everybody else is? What about you, Hefty? See Omar the tent maker for your clothing? So we you know what happens. He gets up there and then he gets ready and watch what happens with this particular altar here. I hope this is making sense to you. You get ready and he says, okay, Lord, I've got everything on here. And the Lord said, okay, hold on just a minute. And then the Bible says there's black word buzzers, those black winged birds come down there. Do you see that in the passage? You know why he does that? Because oftentimes you take stuff to the altar that belongs to the Lord and then guess what happens? Something tries to take it off that altar. I've seen it happen time and time and again after youth camps. 
I've seen a kid get carried away and get sold out and want to serve the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever the capacity might be and they get home and that old black winged buzzard called mama and daddy and reputation and, and you got to get a job and you got to finish school and you got to do this and nano and pawpaw and mamaw and peepaw and all them jump in. Oh, you're getting emotional and you heard an emotional story. You've heard some terrible story about what happened in Brother Peacock's past or something. You're just all carried away with stuff like that and that buzzard takes that off the altar and flies away with it. You know his work doesn't stop after he gets it on the altar. You know what he has to do? He has to stand there and protect the Lord's offering on the altar to keep something from taking it off the altar because he knows now it no longer is in my control. It belongs to the Lord and I'm protecting the Lord's offering now. You ever been to the altar and lay it on the altar and then you get ready to go and I'm just going to kind of keep an eye on it for you, Lord. Take it back with you. You ever lay your burdens down at Calvary? And then pick them back up? Some of you are still carrying some bitterness, aren't you? How many times you brought it to the altar? Well, a couple times. Okay, good. You got 12 to go. Yeah, I know. I just... That's it. There went the audience right out the window. <laughs> Y'all like, let Brother Spurgeon preach, man. We don't like this stuff. I mean, <laughs> I'd rather hear a motorcycle story or something. I don't want to hear this stuff. This is, this, is, <laughs> this is nuts, man. You're talking about me putting some effort into my Christian life? Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I'm talking about. How many times have you been? Well, I don't know. I hadn't bothered to count. You know what that lets me know? There ain't enough to count. You can count it on one hand. Abram gets down there and he gets to lay that stuff and then birds come along and after a while uh, the Lord says okay and he falls asleep and in the horrors of darkness at that moment in time the Lord comes and you know where he's walking? He's walking between the sacrifices. Maybe the reason you never have heard from the Lord is there's nothing on the altar. I mean I don't know that. I can't say that for sure. He doesn't know that that's a spin up to Genesis 22. He's just asking for animals. You think 14 trips to the altar was hard for that boy? How hard do you think it was by the time he jumps to Genesis 22 and the Lord says, Take now thy son, thy only son, to the land of Moriah and offer him there for a sacrifice and a burnt offering on the altar there. My son? Yeah, you trust me, don't you? Oh, now preacher, what we know is we read Hebrews 11 and he, you know, he believed in a resurrection and all that kind of stuff. Okay, let's go take your kid. You believe in a resurrection too, don't you? It just doesn't take place until the Lord comes for the rapture. He's talking about killing his son. You know, God's never going to ask you for those kind of things in your life until you're willing to bring the little things. You're not willing to bring the little things. He ain't going to help you with the big things. He's not going to ask you for the big things. You're not about to do it. You say, why? Well, you don't put any time and effort in those things. You really want a husband? You really want a wife? You want the right husband? You want the right wife? And all that? How much time do you spend asking him about it? Well, I ask him a couple times. He ain't answering me yet, and I ask him about it every night. I'm talking about it at an altar. It doesn't have to just be at a church. It can be at the house. It can be by your bed. It can be at the car dash, for that matter. I'm just talking about a place where you come and say, Lord, I need some help with this thing. I need for you to help me. I need some answers. Lord, how will I know the will of God in my life? Spend some time with me in prayer. Stay with me. Yes. Peter, yes, Lord, you're going to deny me. Not me, Lord. Everybody else will. Okay, Peter, 
before the night's over with, you're going to deny me. No, 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 Lord. I, I mean, we're good, Lord. Everybody else will, but not me. So said they all. You come down there by the time you're in the garden. He comes by the first time. He said, Peter, you need to wake up and you need to watch and pray, boy. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And Peter's like, no, Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm telling you, I'm fine. Boy, one of the most tragic stories in your Bible is because he wouldn't spend time with the Lord in prayer. It's hard, isn't it? He said, Preacher, you're kind of being hard on me. Well, I don't know what else to do, but to tell you that's where the things began. It began at Calvary that way. But you can't go back to Calvary anymore. You say, what? You just go back there to remember it, but you're already saved. By the time you get to Genesis chapter number 22, man, what a scene that is. And he said, take your boy. You know that boy is less than, uh, Abram's less than uh, Abraham at that time. He's less than a one-day journey from that mountaintop geographically. You know what it did? It took him three days to get there. How fast do you reckon you'd walk if the Lord asked you for something like that? You think you'd be in a hurry? I don't blame the boy. Three days to get there, bawling, squalling, crying the whole time he's there, doubting God, thanking God, and the Lord says, you remember what I did to you over there uh, in Genesis 15? Yeah, Lord, I know, but I mean, there's a difference in animals, and that's my son, and Lord, I don't, you know, oh, don't worry about it, you're looking forward to the cross, Abraham, don't, don't worry about it, you, you know how that's going to, you don't have him do all that stuff. He said, I want your boy. My goodness, man, he's got up there and got his knife to his throat there and that boy's laying there 30-something years of age and he's getting ready to slit his throat and so on and so forth. And the Lord said, now I know you what? Not love me. Fear me. Oh, you mean the reason that you have to go to the altar sometimes is because you're afraid of the Lord? Yeah. That's the beginning of wisdom. The fact you don't go sometimes indicates you ain't worried about it. And you don't care what the repercussions are for it. You have a way out of it, but you don't intend on stopping it. Well, we got to hurry along. By the time you get over there to Genesis, let's see, I'm in 15 now. I went to 22. Now I'll be in Genesis so, uh, 28. Jake leaves out from Esau over there and crosses across the river and he goes down there in Genesis 28 down there and that's where he sees the angels ascending and descending there and he's laying out there and he has his uh, pillow, has a rock for a pillow there and he pours out the oil there and he builds him an altar and he soared, Lord, I'll, if you'll do this, I'll do that. You remember that? That place is called Bethel. That's a great place where he met with God and got some business done with God. And so then he goes over there and he works for Rachel for seven years and winds up getting Leah and gets a hoodoo pulled on him and a bait and switch pulled on him. Wakes up the next morning, goes back to work seven more years, finally gets Rachel. And then he winds up you know, getting things worked out and he gets ready to leave Laban. I'm trying to hurry along here. They try to make a peace pact there. Off he goes with his ring-striked animals and, and he leaves over there and he's going to meet his brother Esau. And he gets into a struggle there with uh, the Lord out there in the cornfield and he walks with a limp from that point forward and he puts his women and children out there and they uh, go up there and he makes a peace pact there with Esau and he says, hey, I'll meet you down the road here and that kind of deal. Never does plan on going there. And then the Lord says, hey, men, you need to have a meeting again. I need you to go back to Bethel. And Abram, Abram, I mean, uh, Jacob stopped short in about Genesis chapter, oh, about 33 there, if you read at the end of that chapter, the Bible says that he stopped 
short and he built an altar there and the altar there has something to do with the field or the world in it. Name won't come to my mind right now. I can see it. Top right hand page, right hand corner there. And he builds an altar there and he stops short of where God told him to build the altar. Well, preacher, all churches are just the same. Okay, could I just say respectfully, shut up and listen for just a minute, okay? And if I offended you, good, at least it woke you up. Now listen, you know what he says to him? He said, I'll build an altar there. I mean, one altar is as good as another altar. It doesn't really make any difference. I'll go ahead and build an altar there. We'll go there to church and so on and so forth. Yeah, but wait a minute. You get down to Genesis chapter number 34. He has a daughter there named Dinah. Dinah winds up getting raped. You know what happens? He's got a couple of boys there. You know what those boys do? Those boys go in there and they murder that entire village of people. Murdered them. In the name of God, because they got circumcised, they were sore until the third day. They went in there and killed them. The whole thing was a ruse. It never was about religion at all. You know what else happens? By the time you get to Genesis chapter number 35, you got an idol-worshiping wife with idols inside the house there that are right there, a rebellious woman living there in the household. I wonder if he wishes he'd have gone on back to Bethel when he was told to. A raped daughter, murdering sons, an idol-worshiping wife in his own household? You say, all that for what? Building an altar in the wrong place. The Lord said, arise and go up to Bethel and build there. And he makes it specific in your King James Bible. He emphasizes, build there. That's where I want the altar. You say, the place don't matter. Okay, you go ahead and put the crack pipe down now if you want to because it does matter to God where you worship and it does matter who you're affiliated with and it does matter what goes on when it comes to the worship service. I don't care what anybody tells you. Do you know what winds up happening there? Old Jake sits there and he thinks to himself, he says, well, I guess I wish I'd have done that a long time ago. Too, much, too late now, a lot of collateral damage. By the time you get over to 1 Kings chapter number 17, 18, 19, it's one of the greatest passages there. Israel finds themselves where we were there with Asa, where we were with uh, Gideon, and now we find Israel's in trouble again, and they're in trouble again. You say, why? There's a famine in the land. You know the passage. There's a famine in the land, and there's no water that's around there. Elijah shows up on the sheen from Tishbite, our Tisha, and he shows up. He's a Tishbite, and he shows up, and he tells the king it ain't going to rain no more, and it doesn't rain for three and a half years, and he goes up there. They have the showdown at the OK Corral. But you know what happens there? There's an odd thing that shows up there. The key to why the famine is in the land, the key to why it's a drought in the land, is found right in that passage in 1 Kings 18. Do you know that? It's right there in the passage. You say it was the wickedness of Israel, it's the sin of Israel, it's the adultery of Israel, it's the fornication of Israel, it's them sitting at Jezebel's table, it's having Jezebel's prophets. That's not the problem. The old Baal worshippers get up there, their altars, as I told you at the beginning of the message just a few minutes ago, I told you that they're up there, their altars are always in repair. You say, why? They're using them all the time. They got the best of the best. They're streamlined. I mean, they got the best of everything there in their altars. And they get through having their worship service and nothing happens and 12 o'clock comes and Elijah's making fun of them and mocking them and nobody's standing up there with him. Nobody's agreeing. Nobody's amening the preacher. And then the preacher, Elijah, says to him uh, down there toward the end of that passage on the right-hand page there, you know what he says? He said, come ye near unto me. He said, where's your altar? And they're like, um, well, um, no, where, where's, your, where's your place of worship? Um, well, it's kind of overgrown right now. The weeds have kind of took it over. And 
There's no longer one stone upon another. Um, it's been a while. We didn't take the ashes out and we hadn't cleared out the bones. And well, uh, preacher, I, uh, what do you mean, where's the altar? I mean, where's the altar? Uh, well, preacher, we haven't been using it. Oh. So you know what he does? He says, come here. And he rebuilds the altar. That's the reason for the drought. They stopped worshiping God. And he gets the altar built. And I think the whole time he's shaking his head, man, no wonder there's a drought in the land. Hey, are you dry tonight? What kind of conditions your altar in? How's your personal altar? How's your family altar? How's your church altar? Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I know this in that Bible repeatedly. If the Lord says it once, it's important. But if He says it repeatedly, there is a key here. Back in what I used to do, we would call it a clue. There's a thread. And the thread is the altar's broken down. And as a result, the blessings are not there. And the people are dry. And there's a famine in the land. And the Bible says in the last days, there's a famine in the land. And it ain't preaching. It's for hearers of the Word of God. You say, why? Because the altar is in need of repair. And he builds the altar. And he lays the wood in its courses and he gets the sacrifice on the altar. And he's got everything fixed. And he said, okay, Lord, we're ready. And the Lord said, no, there's something missing. No, sir, Lord, I built the altar the way you want it built. I got everything laid in order. I've done everything right by the book. General orders, SOPs, there it is. What's missing? The Lord said, something they're dependent on more than me. He said, I want 12 barrels of water. The most precious substance in the nation at that time was water. He said, they're dependent more on that water than they're dependent on me. Bring me 12 barrels of water and get you another barrel and fill up a trench around the thing and uh, then get out of the way. You know where God chose to bless the nation of Israel again? It was at an altar. I wonder if they'd have been in the condition they were in and I wonder if this country would be in the condition they were in. Dare I say this, I wonder if you'd be in the condition you were in if your altar wasn't in need of repair. So preacher, how's your altar? You don't compare altars. Um, Lord, am I in need of repair? Have you ever asked him? Is your prayer life like it should be? No, preacher, nobody prays like it ought to be. Why, Why is always that dip out? Is your Bible reading where? Well, nobody ever reads enough Bible. Sometimes I do. I read till the Lord says that's enough. I get it right sometimes. Well, couldn't you read more? Well, sure, sure. But I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do. But I'm not the standard of measurement. The Lord gave everything he had when he went up to Calvary's cross on an altar. And we're more like Cain, aren't we? We bring what we want to bring. We don't bring what we requires. And you know what we think? We think it's like salvation. I come once to get saved, and that's the only time I'm going to come. There's an old cuss at my church years ago. He sat way back in the back right-hand corner. He's always back in the corner there. And you sit there to have to, I don't even know why he bothered to come. He's just miserable all the time. 
and he'd sit back there and sit back there. And I preached a message about uh, 1 Kings 18, made a few comments, not even a big deal about the altar, just made some comments about it. That old cuss came by the door and on the way out the door and he said, I went to the altar when I got saved and if I need to go after that, I'll let you know. And bam, walked right out the door. I thought, well, I guess you ain't got much of a relationship. Now, I don't know what condition you're in. You're just trying to coax me down the altar. I'm up front. I'm telling you, it's no bait and switch. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm trying to do. You say, why? That's where great things in my life have occurred. I'm telling you right now. And more times than not in the church. Old preacher's preaching the parting of the ways. I'm down at the altar. The Lord spoke to me about what I was supposed to do as far as career and everything else. And it came to marrying that girl over there. I got the answer for that down at an altar, even though I wasn't as in fellowship with the Lord as I am now. And not just for my salvation and not just for sin. And sometimes go down there and weep and cry and bawl and squall. And I get comfort down there at the altar when going through different kind of difficult things. But you know what I recognize? I recognize if I would just make a habit of being at the altar, I wouldn't have to always be looking for one. It'd be a regular place. I don't know why it is that people are afraid of the altar. I don't know why it is that back in the days, all I hear now is a Billy Graham would get up and he'd give a thing, and I know all the smoke and mirrors and all the other kind of stuff. But you know what? Thousands of people would come down there to an altar at a, at a baseball stadium or a basketball stadium or, or different things like that. And nowadays, the people with the absolute truth and the King James Bible in their lap, uh, you might get one or two people, not just for salvation, that'll even bother to even darken the doors of an altar. We kind of give an, I don't, I don't need no altar. I'm good. Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I'm just going to stop it right there. I'm going to ask you to consider something. What's the condition of your altar tonight? You and the Lord are square. Great. That's wonderful. That's marvelous. Not here to make fun of you. I am asking you to consider things. Maybe the drought in your life tonight is because your altar's in bad need of repair. Maybe the reason that there's problems is, is because... You're more concerned about everybody else. And the Lord's saying, you know what? We need to meet down at the altar. We need to have some time together. He said, well, preacher, there's just too many. Why don't, you, why don't you make an effort? Quit worrying about what everybody else thinks. Let God look down at you tonight and say, hey, I, I see you kneeling down there by the pew. I, I understand where, you, what you're, where you're at. I see you bowed over and your heart bent. I see you humbled. You say, Lord, before you put something on there, Lord, what's the condition of it? I need to get it rebuilt, get it back in the right place and humble myself before you. Nobody's looking around. Nobody's paying any attention. They got their own deal. Preacher, we need revival in America. No, we need revival in our own personal hearts. Worrying about revival in the church and revival in the nation and revival of this and that. How about ourselves? individually, one-on-one. Heavenly Father, done the best I know to do, and I pray, Lord, that you take these uh, examples that are all throughout the Bible and so many more on top of that and bring us back to the altars like it used to be. And there won't just be something that was talked about from back in the day. But Lord, it might be like them boys in Madison that we come because we know that there's power connected to that altar and there's power in a bowed head and a bent knee. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to humble ourselves under your mighty hand at the altar and not be ashamed of it and not try to make it some religious ceremony but to find the comfort, the forgiveness, 
not just the sacrifice and the surrender, but also the gratitude for the things you've done for us. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Preacher, you come.